when I um, started at university. The first uh, fortnight was one of my favourite two weeks of university, um, not just because it was a DOS and there wasn't much work to do, but because you got to real, really get a picture of what the lectures and the lecturers and the different um, aspects of the course were. Um, each time you went to a, a lecture or a lab or a class, you got to know something of how the course was going to work out. But for me, what I enjoyed far more was you got to understand and see something of the character of the lecturers. Because if anything tells you about someone, it's introducing the way something's going to work. And through the, those two weeks, we met lots of different lecturers uh, and PhD students that were going to be doing different things with us. And I really, really enjoyed, more than anything, working out what these individuals were going to be like uh, for that time at university. Uh, one of my favourite lecturers uh, through my time at university had uh, quite a memorable opening lecture with us. He was a lecturer that for first year, uh, we had a, a long lecture on a Thursday morning starting at 9am. And on the first morning, the first day, Thursday morning, 9am, he got us all in uh, and gave us a bit of a headline as to how his lectures were going to work. He laid a bit of a map out as to how the course content would work. But he, he laid some ground rules for how his lectures would work as well. To give you a bit of context, there was maybe 150, 200 people in this lecture and there was this big lecture hall with staggered seating. And he would stand at the front uh, with his um, setup and not OHP, we were beyond that, um, but all of his stuff. And with the tiered seating, the only entrance into the room was right next to him, a door, a bit like this fire escape here. One entrance into the room for 150, 200 people to file in and out of at the beginning of each lecture. You can imagine that's not ideal. And you can also imagine that um, if you're late to a lecture or if you want to rush out of a lecture, it's not the ideal setup to do that. And so in this first lecture, uh, this lecturer was laying some ground rules for how we were to engage with his lecture. And one of them, most memorably, was, if you are one minute late, do not bother coming to this lecture. If you're one minute late, do not bother coming to this lecture. He, he laid it on thick. He was a pretty intense character. He, uh, that made him a, a very engaging lecturer. But he made that very clear that we had understood that rule. And you can imagine coming away from that lecture, we kind of talked to each other, well, how is he going to enforce that? How is he going to make sure that no one turns up more than a minute late? Anyway, the, the next week it became pretty clear how he was going to enforce this rule. From 8.45, he stood at this door, welcoming people in, saying good morning, hello, welcome, it's good to have you. He tried to learn people's names. He was very friendly and very stern. Because come 9.01, he stood at these doors and they were slammed shut and he began lecturing. Now, second week of term, nobody even tried it. Nobody even thought closed door is a closed door. He made that very clear. But come week six, Thursday morning, 9am, it was a bit more difficult for us first year students 
Maybe we'd got our feet under the table a bit more. Maybe we were a bit more confident around the place at university. Probably also a big contributing factor was that Wednesday night was a big night at the students' union. It was societies and sports clubs night. So it made it even more difficult and less appealing to be there on time at 9am on a Thursday morning. Well, six weeks into term, it happened. We're all sat in our lecture, quietly listening to our lecturer, and we hear the squeak of the door. The door squeaks open and in walks one of the lads in a different sports club. It was pretty evident from uh, his entrance that he'd probably not made it to bed, let alone washed or tried to change clothes, and he was really struggling to make this lecture. In fact, it was ten past nine, and he was very late. Silence in the room. Every eye was on him. And then the lecturer. And then him. And the lecturer waiting for what felt like a long time to see what was going to break the silence. Eventually, the lecturer turned to this student and said, What makes you think it's acceptable to enter this lecture ten minutes late? The student simply said, I'm really sorry, I overslept, which was almost certainly a lie. It didn't seem to have slept at all. But the lecturer said in reply, go home, go to sleep, never open that closed door again. Stern as you like, silence in the room, and the student turned round, walked home, went to bed. And that was it. That was the moment. The moment the lecturer put his foot down. The moment the lecturer asserted ultimate authority over the environment, the moment that he made it so clear he was not to be messed with, the moment that sealed for the rest of our three years of lectures with this one lecturer, nobody was ever late. Ever. He had ultimate control in that environment as a lecturer of those students. That was the statement moment. Week six, when that student walked through the door, that was the statement moment. Because from then on, whatever it cost you, it was worth you getting to the lecture before nine o'clock or going home to bed. Look, as we arrive at Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, here is something of a statement moment from Jesus. Remember the the context of last week? As Jesus addresses those followers, he wants to make it clear following Jesus is costly. Remember our, our series, The Power and Mission of the Messiah? Looking at at how this man, Jesus, shows himself to be king with all authority and power. And so the natural discussion you can imagine between the followers of Jesus from last week would have been, well, is there a cost to following Jesus? Is it worth it? Is it worth that cost, following Jesus? Because Jesus, as we saw last week, he kind of laid out his principles of what it looks like to follow him. Like my lecturer on day one. And 
in response, we're not quite sure where the followers have landed yet. Will they really count the costs and follow him? Is it worth following Jesus? And no, no doubt in the room this afternoon, whether you'd say you follow Jesus or not, whether you've followed him for many, many years, or just started looking at this man Jesus, there's moments that we face regularly, daily, subtly, subconsciously, or sometimes very obviously and calculated, is it worth following Jesus? Is it worth doing that to follow Jesus? Is it really worth that painful battle of fighting that sin that keeps cropping up? Saying no to some temptation with the desire to honour Jesus? Is it really worth it? Is it really worth giving up free hours of my week to, to show God's love, to demonstrate care for my church family, to spend time with people that don't yet know Jesus? Is it really worth it? Is it really worth being ready to sacrifice my selfish ambition? Being ready to give up prospects of a big house, a promotion, a flash car, expensive clothes for the sake of honouring God? Is it worth it? Is it really worth putting your reputation on the line in front of friends, family, naming Jesus, saying you follow him? Is it really worth it? Because making the decision to follow Jesus, it comes with a cost. That's what Jesus wanted to make so clear last week. Now look, here's what happens next as we join the story. Have a look down at these verses. Jesus gets into the boat and he calls his disciples to come in with him. They're in the boat and suddenly this furious storm comes up on the lake. To these seasoned fishermen, some of them, this storm was remarkable. It was sweeping over the boat. They were beginning to get frightened, we see. But where's Jesus? Sleeping in the boat. The disciples, they, they go and wake him. Look at verse 25 saying, Lord, save us, we're going to drown, absolutely petrified. And he replies, you have little faith, why are you so afraid? But then, just read these words, have a look down at verse 26. Read along with me. Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. Can you just imagine that scene for a moment? This lake, huge lake. Massive storm, so much so that the seasoned fishermen were, were petrified. Absolute chaos, thinking they're fighting for their lives. Jesus stands up and with a few words, absolute calm. Can you just imagine the moment, just a few seconds afterwards, as they lay in the boat, probably a nosebleed here or there, drenched in, sea, uh, in lake water and sweat, looking at one another going, whoa, trying to catch their breath. And yet in that moment, they couldn't help surely but have their eyes fixed on this man, Jesus. It's the penny drop moment. 
a bit like the moment in week six of my lectures. It's the realisation that this man is in complete control. With, with all the conversation that's gone between these disciples before this point, surely this is the point at which they're going in their minds, whatever it costs, we must follow him. It makes no sense to do anything else here. It's not just control of a room of 150 students. Jesus is literally orchestrating nature. Jesus has absolute control. And so that's what they do. The disciples, they turn to one another in amazement. Look at verse 27. They ask, what kind of man is this? Even the wind and waves obey him. This is Jesus, who's just told them to expect it to be uncomfortable following him. This is Jesus who's just told them to not drag their feet and get involved in all sorts of other things, but, but immediately come and follow him. And, and so you see, in that moment, in the stillness of the boat, as they're just about getting their stuff together, as they fix their eyes on Jesus, surely, following Jesus, it must make sense. Surely they're looking at one another going, Jesus, he, he is the real deal. It's his demonstration of ultimate power over nature. He holds all authority. And in reality, in that one moment, as the disciples look at one another, there's only one cost to following Jesus. The cost of submitting to this powerful Lord Jesus. The cost is to admit that they themselves have a complete inability to affect their own situation. Do you remember, rewind just a couple of minutes, and they are completely helpless. They can do nothing by themselves. The cost of following Jesus is a complete inability, recognising that complete inability to affect your own situation. You see, for us, I wonder what you thought of as I talked about the cost of following Jesus or went to through some of those things that affect us. I wonder what it is that feels so hard. As you think about following Jesus, as you follow Jesus, what it is that, that really hurts. It's difficult. It, it great, it, you revisit it. Time, money, hardship, reputation. What is it that is so difficult? that cost of following Jesus. Because surely, if, if we just had that full picture of the Lord Jesus, that in that moment, the, the ultimate authority sat in the boat, it pales into insignificance. And following Jesus, submitting to him, it becomes the most natural response. But only when you're completely aware that you're out of control you're unable to affect your own situation I'd wonder 
what you'd say is the most out of control you felt of your own situation. Quite likely, in the face of a medical emergency, either you or someone you love. You know, when, when you hear news of something and, and you can do nothing, whether it be something slightly more simple, like a dislocated shoulder or a broken bone, or, or far worse news, you receive that news and you can do nothing. You, you rest solely on the care of the medical professionals. They say, here's the problem. Here's the only way it might get better. And you're left to say, okay, we'll go with what you recommend. I don't know where you glean most of your human biology knowledge from, um, if you're anything like me, it will be something like, um, well, from someone like Gregory House, uh, the American document, uh, the American series House, uh, and how he does all of his diagnostic medicine, or maybe something a bit lighter. Um, there's always on the television something like 24 Hours in A&E. I don't know how that program seems to always be on the television. Whatever channel it is, it's always there. But if you've um, tuned into enough of those kinds of programmes, or maybe you are a medical professional, another way to actually glean real human biology, um, maybe you're one of those two people. You are familiar with the term triple A. It's, it's got nothing to do with batteries. It's an abdominal aortic aneurysm. Maybe you've seen it on a, on a programme like that. It's a bulge in the major blood vessel that takes blood away from your heart. And when that bulge increases in size, you can imagine the risk that comes with so much blood going through a vessel that is so susceptible to bursting, it's really dangerous. Essentially, when there's a risk of rupture to that blood vessel, it has to be dealt with immediately. There's no kind of second chance when that ruptures. It's got to be done. Um, I obviously only know any of this because of my uh, watching of Greg House and uh, 24 Hours in A&E. So I stand, I stand to be corrected, but we'll see. Um, but one episode of 24 Hours in A&E sticks in my mind quite remarkably because this man, he was brought into A&E if, you if you're not familiar with the concept of 24 hours in A&E, it's very simple. They track A&E and all the comings and goings of A&E for 24 hours. Sometimes it's really interesting, sometimes it's quite boring. But this occasion, one man stuck in my mind. He came into A&E and he had a bit of chest pain but, but didn't appear or wasn't presenting to be that ill. He um, obviously met with the right doctors and they had to give their right assessment. He was given a precautionary scan of his chest, and as you can imagine where this story is going, there was a significant triple A, an abdominal aortic aneurysm. It sticks in my mind because what went from being a pretty simple case of someone entering A&E with chest pain led within an hour to this man sitting before a consultant to hear the news that he had a massive bulge in this significant blood vessel. 
In fact, the stats on it were so bad, if it wasn't operated on there and then, he would die very quickly. That's what they said. If, it were, if they were to go straight into the operating theatre, he had a 60% chance of survival. That's what the doctor said. Can you imagine walking into any with a slightly bad chest pain, only to be told an hour later that your best shot at life is 60% chance of survival. He sat waiting with his son, and the doctor comes out to speak to him, gives him all this news, and you can just imagine the silence in the room. This man receives this news, he looks at the doctor, he looks at his son, he looks back at the doctor... And for this long pause, everyone looks at each other and the only thing that can be said is said. We're just going to have to go with it. Literally the only thing that makes sense is to depend on the skill of the surgeon. To trust him and go under the knife. When you look at what happens with those that are following Jesus. Overwhelmed by a storm. Jesus, he's, he's sleeping and they're scared. It seems pretty reasonable to be completely panicked, right? Jesus is just sleeping under the boat and they feel like they're going to die. But here's the point. If you follow Jesus, you are under the care of the Messiah, the King of the universe, He orchestrates nature by his own words. He's got the steadiest hand, steadier than any surgeon we could ever trust. He's got the safest and most powerful words as he commands a storm, still in an instant. And so just as he commands ultimate control, we should have no delay in submitting to him. It should be the the most natural thing. Just like in that moment before the the doctor. Well, it's the most sensible thing to do. But you see, there is a slight danger, isn't there? That it all sounds a bit like no other option. Last resort. Let's just crack on with this Christian life. Dig deep and get through. With those hardships. Uh, well, I've just got to get through and follow Jesus. There's a danger, it feels like that. But you see, submitting to the Messiah, as he demonstrates his power over uh, nature, it must be the very best thing for us to do that. Think about all those ways in which you thought about counting the costs of following Jesus. Persisting in the battle of fighting sin, saying no to temptation, desiring to honour God giving up time to to help those, care for those in the church family, or spend time with people that you'd love to share the news of this man, Jesus. Being ready to sacrifice selfish ambition, giving up things that we might love for the sake of others, putting your reputation on the line for the sake of following Jesus, speaking about him. The cost of all of those things. In the moment, they might all feel so costly. They do. 
But making the decision to honour King Jesus, to follow him with all that we are, it will always bring us joy. Because if Jesus demonstrates power over all nature and creation, he's showing his ultimate authority over everything in this world. And as Messiah, the, the right king over everything, over every good thing that has been created, it must be the very best thing for us to give our everything to him. It's not always easy. It won't be. But it, it will always be the very best thing for us. And always the only decision that makes sense. God, in his grace, has given us this man Jesus, the Messiah, the King with all authority over everything. When we could do nothing to affect our own situation, absolutely helpless, we couldn't save ourselves. He, and only he, can rescue us. And when we accept his rescue, we submit to him as king, that's when we find true and lasting life. Will you? Will you submit to the Lord Jesus as king? Joyfully follow him and find lasting life? Let me pray. Father, please would you help us Help us, like in that moment, recognise the ultimate authority of the Lord Jesus. But Lord, as we do so, please would you help us to joyfully follow him, give everything to follow him. Because we know it's the best thing for us. Amen. Well, we're going to stand and sing together a song that speaks of this saving work that is not ours that we couldn't save ourselves but God gave the Lord Jesus and he alone can rescue us so let's sing together